This episode was recorded in the summer of 2019. Since then, Seven Shifts has raised an additional $7.9 million in funding, partnered with a half dozen other restaurant technology providers, and added more than 5,000 new customers. This is the story of how it got to where it is today. Today on the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast. I was going door to door with these, these sketches of seven shifts and going page and flipping through and people were, you know, interested, but we didn't really, we didn't really close anyone that way. What, what did work though, is after we had that customer through the, the inbound channels of, of coming to us, is going to visit them after in person and talking to them and getting their feedback because they were already using the product. They had a lot of good feedback. And I think being highly customer focused and highly customer driven is, is a really big differentiator in making it as a, as a company and really scaling. Seven Shifts customers told the employee scheduling software giant its product was good, but it wasn't great. So founder and CEO Jordan Bosch made a hard decision, walk away from two thirds of his customers. On this episode of the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast, we learn how to pivot for greater success and why one of the best places to build a successful high-tech startup is almost 3,000 kilometers away from the financial and tech capital of Canada. Here is Michael Hainsworth. The average employee changes jobs about every four years. The average restaurant worker, every 57 days. Startup Success Story 7 Shifts aims to change all that by making shift scheduling easier for managers and shifts more enjoyable for workers. The goal? Retention. The Saskatoon-based founder Jordan Bosch and I spent the day hopscotching between his Toronto office and a local hotspot to learn this innovation economy company's secrets of success. We began by talking about his strategic decision to let go two-thirds of his customers, those in retail and other shift-oriented industries, to focus exclusively on restaurateurs. Yeah, it was extremely scary to know that you're isolating two-thirds of your existing customers. And but what was even worse was we were building for all of these types of customers and all these types of industries. And so we were kind of the jack of all, master of none. And so that was more troubling to me than having to potentially shut out two thirds of our customers. And what it meant was going back to our roots. Why did we start the business? Who were we originally solving this pain point for? It was for the restaurant industry. So we made steps to get back there, uh, but it paid off longer term. Did it hurt to call up two thirds of your clients and say, we're not interested in you anymore? <laughs> When you would visit our website, you'd, uh, and, and you were in a restaurant and you came, you come there, you're probably surprised to see that there's now pictures of chefs and servers on, and you might be a retail company. And so, yeah, people were, you know, kind of confused um, about the direction. And, and we had some people that left and, and that was okay though, because we now felt like we were building a, a great product for an industry that so badly needed help. Tell me then if you could go back in time to that decision, what advice would you give yourself? If I go back to that decision, I think the advice I would give myself around that problem we faced was just trying to find who you are and why you exist and who are you ultimately building this solution for. And I think that it's so important to be true and, and be, be aware of that. And um, you know, from that, you'll make some decisions that you may have not have thought of, but it comes from the very top of really understanding who you're ultimately solving these pain points for. Tell me more about that, that decision because you know, it would have been easy just to keep on doing what you were doing. Yeah, it, it would have been easy to just keep going for sure. Um, but I was never satisfied knowing that our customers weren't over the moon about what we were doing. They were, ha they, were they thought it was good. They didn't think it was great. 
And if I'm going to devote the amount of time that I devote to this company, uh, I want people to have the sentiment that this is a great product. This is changing how I how I work, how I live, and how I, I do, do my day-to-day. -day. It needs to be a world-changing company to me. So what advice would you give to entrepreneurs facing their fork in the road? Yeah, it's going to be tough. I think the, the, the best decisions are often the hardest. And so when you... Um, when you kind of get to that point, I think I think you need to first ask yourself: Are you really who are you building this product for, and who are you ultimately solving those pain points for? And from that might come some really hard decisions, and you might have a fork in the road from from going through that th that thought process. Oftentimes, the the best ones are the are the hardest decisions. So uh, it's it's just really important that you you don't take the easy way out. Just remember what's right for the business and the customer that you're focusing on. In 2014 zero restaurants. Today, almost 10,000. How did you get there? Yeah, the path is really hard from zero to 10,000. 10, you're, you're constantly iterating on product, talking to customers, getting that first bit of traction and then getting them happy and them telling more customers. And it was it was this kind of flywheel effect that started happening in, in a really organic fashion. And, and then we started growing and people started looking for something like labor management for schedule for restaurants online. And that's where we show up. Uh, primarily. And another big driver for us is the fact that we took this path of going from focusing on everything, every industry, to focusing just on the restaurant industry meant we opened the doors up to partnering with some of the best vendors um, and distributors in the restaurant space as it relates to either food or technology. So that was a major growth driver for us that we felt was a big contributor to our success. You're 2,700 kilometers away from the Software Development Center of Canada. Does that even matter anymore? Yeah, so we're we are located in in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I think it's it's uh, it's not the the most it's not a place where you think of like a massive technology hub in Canada. However, there's amazingly smart, talented people that are you know, hardworking and willing to do what it takes to build a world class company in a place that most people don't think you can do that. So I think that <clears throat> what we do have going for us there is is, is you know, smart people that are that are extremely loyal and that want to be part of something bigger. And so, you know, as a result, we don't have the same level of competition that you might have in a in bigger metropolitan centers like Toronto or San Francisco. And, and we can really stay laser focused, deliver a, a great product and, and build a, a massive company. Plus the nightlife. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, got, uh, it's got some great nightlife for sure. I mean, Saskatoon's a, a college town, so um, it's, there's always something going on. There's always bands passing through. It's, uh, it's a great place to be if you're young, for sure. <laughs> What kind of advice would you provide uh, an entrepreneur just starting out looking to raise the money they need just to get things going? For folks that are just starting out and trying to raise a bit of money and trying to get to where you know that they're, they're, they're going and, and hopefully they're raising money to build a really massive company that's going to make a really big difference, you know, you should really look at the type of business you want to build. And I think that's that's a question that you know someone asked me early on in my career about: Is venture capital the right route? Is funding the right route? Is bootstrapping the right route? I think I think you have to really understand the landscape and who you're competing with to really understand which mechanism is the right road for you, and also your risk tolerance. I think you need to be true to yourself because what you don't want is to tie yourself to a rocket ship and uh, realize, kind of like as it's taking off, that you don't actually want to be on it, that it's uncomfortable, or these these things are. Uh, you know, that, that are just out of your risk tolerance. So I think that people need to be really true to themselves about what type of business they want to build uh, for the long term. And at what point do you choose to use debt financing as opposed to using more of your shares as currency? Yeah, I think when you choose to use debt fi financing uh, over something like 
an equity round is, is really when you you feel like you maybe don't want to take on that that extra dilution. Um, maybe you want to uh, postpone that event, um, knowing that there's going to be interest tied to it, but you're going to make that up with a larger valuation longer uh, longer term. And kind of just putting your, yourself through that mental exercise. I think it's really healthy for people to do and play with those scenarios. And, and it's just your responsibility as an owner and, and an operator to go through that. Now you could have used equity in the company to raise additional funds. Why a debt financing with CIBC? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to capitalize a business when you need it. Obviously, capital is instrumental to grow businesses nowadays, especially in tech. So, you know, when choosing the right vehicle, it's important to think, you know, if you want to get, if you want to optimize for valuation down the road and you think you can get a, a better valuation than you can that day, you might want to kick that, that can down the road a little bit further and get something like debt financing or a line of credit to, to kind of offset that, knowing and kind of doing the math on that and thinking that you can make up for the difference um, with, with, uh, with equity down the road. Why'd you go with CIBC? CIBC has been great uh, advocate for, for tech companies and, and growing businesses like ourselves. And they've been, they've been extremely supportive throughout our growth and, um, you know, always kind of being on top of what, what we're up to and making sure they can provide ways to help. So, you know, being, being partnered with them from a banking perspective um, has, has just meant a lot of great hands-on work and feeling like we're, we're more of a partner, less of a, a client. Do you ever think in high school, you'd be spending your time talking about money like this? No, I did not. I did not think I'd be talking about money like this. I, uh, I wasn't. I, I didn't get very good grades in school. I always. I, I actually. I really like math. Um, but you know, I think I, I always wanted to do something completely different. I just wanted to build businesses, and I wanted people to use uh, products. And, and I, I got gratification of, of solving problems for people, and um, that's why I gravitated to programming and, and building a tech company. I think that's the most gratifying thing is knowing that you're building something that, and people are using every day as part of their lives and they see it as, as a solution to something that they're doing. I'm quickly learning within the entrepreneurial community that mistake is not a bad word, that it's okay to admit you've made mistakes. True? Told you this. No, it is, it is true. It's like very true that you make a ton of mistakes along the way. And what I always refer to this as, um, how many mistakes can we mitigate from, from happening? Because you're gonna make a ton along the way and whether that's getting advice, having, strong, you know, having a strong board or advisors or mentors that you can talk to, you still wanna trip several times. Mm -hmm. if, you could, if you had the option, I would rather trip once than 10 times. So I think that there's, there's, a, there's a big desire to learn fast from your mistakes. So it's really important that when you make them, and especially in a high-paced environment where venture capital is being poured into companies to move quickly and grow fast, you know the expectation from the human level, which we are all humans running these companies, is that you can you can have a high learning velocity to kind of keep the pace with the growth of your business. So in the early days, when you had that pad of paper and you were building out what you wanted the software to look like, and you were going door to door, what was the biggest mistake? you made then that you learned from? I would say the biggest the biggest mistake from going door to door and trying to sell seven shifts was, I don't know that I was ever really talking to the right person. And I think that getting to the decision maker early on would have been far more beneficial. You know, I may have been talking to, um, you know, like the, 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 the assistant manager or someone that wasn't like actually building the schedules. And so, you know, I think that the intentions were good in trying to provide a solution and talk through a solution with these folks, <laughs> with these sketches and papers mm -hmm. that I had. 
But I don't think, I think that I was missing really dealing with the decision makers. Was going door to door the right way to approach this? Going door to door was not the best way to approach this. So what happened was I was going door to door with these, these sketches of seven shifts and going page and flipping through and people were, you know, interested, but we didn't really, we didn't really close anyone that way because what happened was seven shifts was always available online and we had people that were coming through and signing up effortlessly. So very quickly, I diverted my attention to these people that were interested, that were aware of a product, uh, our product and, and had that pain point. So I shifted focus to that and, and that's, that's largely how we operate today. We, we aren't a door-to-door company. We are a, you know, an inbound sales company. Uh, we, we work with a lot of partners to kind of have folks that are interested in, in, in coming through that, that funnel and, and just being able to serve those people when they come through our door and show interest. So the customer acquisition model changed fairly quickly. Yes, very quickly. And it's, it's funny, you know, you, I, I always, as we, as, as we saw what, what worked, which is, you know, the model we have today, throughout this process, I kept thinking, well, you know what, I'm going to go back and try door to door again and see what happens. And what I, what I realized, it just, it just never really worked. Like it, it, it just never, what, what did work though, is after we had that customer through the, the inbound channels of, of coming to us, is going to visit them after mm. in person and talking to them and getting their feedback because they were already using the product. They had a lot of good feedback. And I think being highly customer focused and highly customer driven is, is a really big differentiator in, in you know, um, making it as a, as a company and really scaling. And uh, you know, as we've grown past 100 people, that's something that we don't, that's, we can't sacrifice. We're all talking to customers. Every, you better believe every time I eat at a restaurant, I'm talking to the servers and the managers and my wife gets annoyed you know, go, going out to eat with me sometimes, but it, it's, really, it's really this loop that needs to always continue. plan to stay in the family business, you learned to code. The whole idea of starting to code was trying to solve a pain for my dad. And um, and that's really where it came out of it was, can I solve this problem? And oh, this coding thing, it seems interesting. I'm going to try that. And it just kind of evolved from there. And, and then I got jobs in software. So you were trying to help your father solve a pain point within the restaurant industry. What's the big pain point for the industry? We don't have enough fingers on hand to count all the problems and the, and, the, and the issues. So, you know, everything from food cost and, and waste and um, inventory and uh, labor management is a huge problem. And so if you ask a lot of folks, you know, hiring and retaining staff, it's, it's kind of goes hand in hand with that. So building something where my dad could manage the schedules and, and keep staff happy and informed was a big part of you know, retention. What did that scheduling look like before you learned to code and solve that problem for dad? Scheduling was, okay, so I went to my dad's, uh, well, he had this office at the back of Quizmos, and there was a computer there and pens and papers, and there were all these sticky notes of staff that said, I can't work Saturday, going on vacation next week, and it was just like this hodgepodge of, of like requests. And so he would sift through those, and he would put the sticky notes on his screen, on the side part, and then he would open Excel on his monitor, and he would go, okay, so like Tracy can't work, 
uh, she's go, okay, so that person has dance class, this person has soccer, and he would just manually enter it into this Excel spreadsheet. And it would take him hours to do this. And after he finally finished it, he would print it off and he would go put it on the on the kind of the cork board at the back. And then of course employees would come up and go, oh no, 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 I can't work that day. Yeah. And you'd have to start all over again. They'd say, oh, I forgot to tell you, I couldn't work this day, I'm out of town, or I forgot. And so it just became a lot of chicken scratch on top of the schedule, pens crossing out times. And pretty soon you couldn't actually read the schedule anymore. Because people were, and there was a little bottle of whiteout that you would take and you would dip in and you would white out um, the printed time. That was the high tech part yeah. of it, the whiteout. Exactly, and people would grab pens and they'd write over it. And you know, this it, it was just a nightmare. And uh, it's crazy that that is still something that goes on for the majority of restaurants today. So when you built this software, that was version one. Today, you're incorporating machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I mean, we started at a very basic level and we still provide a really great basic streamlined scheduling uh, program for restaurant operators. But as we have been you know, looking at this problem and, and trying to solve it in a bigger way, we found that a lot of operators, you know, they, they still spend time building schedules. So we're trying to think in the next several years, like what is that gonna look like? Are people really gonna be spending as much time and do we want them spending as much time managing their labor and staff um, when you know some of the scheduling uh, behaviors are predictable given the right inputs around availability whether whether uh, whether seasonality trends all that kind of stuff so if we can get the the right inputs can we programmatically infer the right outputs that match the business needs with say the the happiness and flexibility of the staff need and also the productivity of those staff members. So we're trying to really hit on these three points as we kind of evolve the product. The productivity of the staff members sounds like the most interesting use for AI. Yes, I think that there is, there's this notion, I think, when people go to, when you tell a restaurant operator, we're gonna automate your schedule, it's gonna be awesome. It schedules these two people together that they never schedule together. You know, I purposely don't schedule, you know, uh, Dan and, and Jacob together because I know that they just don't get anything done. They're too busy know? goofing off. Yeah, they're too busy goofing off. And AI solves that problem. And, and, and they're on their phone. And so we're, we're trying to, you know, I think we've got some work to do definitely in terms of understanding what the productivity matches. But I think I think really step one is getting the, the, the labor needs right. Like what do you actually need to hit those labor targets at a given day. If we get that right, then it's like, okay, who can work those shifts? Who's available? And who, how can we match their preferred weekly hours and availability and all this kind of stuff? And then, you know, once we got, we have those people and we're feeling confident in creating the schedule that looks very similar to how restaurant operators do schedules, but it's maybe, maybe a bit better um, and, and helps on labor costs. Then the next piece is like, okay, how do we start to make recommendations based on productivity, how they can even boost it even more. So I think it's a, a three-step problem um, that, that we're, we're kind of, we're still getting started with, but we have some really good early signs of success. At the end of every shift, the employee gets to be able to rate their shift? Yes. We, we kind of believe in creating the system where, you know, you're not just told what, what needs to be, um, you know, when you work. Like, there needs to be something that's more encompassing to make sure that you as a staff member are bought into the company, the culture, and, and, and you, there's a proper feedback mechanism in place um, to reflect on your shift. And this might help the manager schedule you for different shifts or, um, or find out that maybe these two people might not work well together um, if the manager didn't know. So what we do is we send a push notification after the shift and say, you know, hey Michael, how's your shift today? Sad face, medium face, smiley face, write some comments. And, uh, 
it, just to try and help inform the managers and the operators what's happening at the ground level. I think there's a, there's a big disconnect, especially as you move up the market into larger chains where there's regional managers, district managers, store managers, assistant. There's just the feedback mechanism at the ground level is just very poor. What's next for Seven Shift? What I'm most excited about is, um, you know, the, the future of what we're doing. So we obviously have scheduling and labor management as our core function, and that's what we built a business on. But really, we're interested in, in attacking and, and solving problems for all aspects of the employee lifecycle. So you think of the moment someone's hired, then they're trained and they're scheduled, and then they're paid after they work their shifts, and then they're retained. So those five elements are what we define as the, the employee lifecycle. So we're going to be building products that solve these pain points from the moment someone steps into your restaurant. Um, as an employee that works there to the moment they you know either leave or are retained you know the goal is that we can provide tools to help managers with retention um, not just the scheduling piece so longer term I'm, I'm really excited to solve pains across the entire employee life cycle so AI you're getting into artificial intelligence see I don't know how to answer that question like because we're not it's not artificial intelligence it's machine it's, learning yeah it's it, it's machine learning yeah which is which is funny because everybody thinks of the same thing yeah geeks like me just give up and accept that people won't know the difference but yeah yeah y you knew the difference yeah I mean so yeah we are getting into machine learning and it's it's a really it's really interesting because as we as we, as we built this business on scheduling and helping managers streamline that process we think about what is that next evolution to that sched that core scheduling component and we don't think managers should be spending time having to think about that kind of stuff. You know, we would rather them be on the floor with customers or thinking about great campaigns that are gonna drive more business and, and, and focus on the front of house elements that create a really great dining experience. So how can we automate that using you know, key drivers around weather, seasonality, events that are happening nearby, pair up great people that do great work and ultimately give the managers a schedule that makes the most sense for their, their workforce. What's the one bit of entrepreneurial advice you would have given yourself if you could rewind the clock to day one? If I could rewind the clock to day one and give myself some advice, it would be probably to try and remain focused on the, the core needs of, of what we're solving for for the customer. I think it's very easy to get lost in a lot of noise of you should do this and there's a lot of buzzwords out there um, of, of you know trends and, and just remaining true to, to, to understand that the customers that we are serving, that we build products for, are going from something that's you know paper to something online and that in itself is a large step. So really just trying to make sure we're late, you remain laser focused on that simple tool that's providing meaningful improvements and efficiencies over time for these for these operators. Learn more about the innovation economy, why your business model doesn't have to follow Silicon Valley's rules, how to take your company global, and why diversity is key to corporate success. Subscribe to the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast with Michael Hainsworth at CIBC.com slash innovation banking.